1: Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to this little mini-series here looking at the Trent Affair of late 1861. This five-part series is designed to, well, be a kind of present to you for being such a good listener for the last several years. It's also designed to get you in the mood for Britain Goes to War, which should be launching in the spring and will be exclusive for $5 patrons. In the last episode, we looked at international law and national honour and how those two concepts really fitted into this Trent affair and made it such a big deal for the Americans and the British. We saw that the British were really unable to compromise in this position. They had to do something, and that something was to develop a war plan. I know I left you on a kind of cliffhanger, so in this episode here, we're going to look at that war plan. I don't see any point in dragging this introduction out, so let's get started. I'll now take you to December 1861. As we have seen, Britain sent limited reinforcements to its Canadian frontier, and it also drew up plans for an invasion of the US state of Maine. But were these plans truly realistic? In particular, the main landing sounds like a piece of fiction straight out of an alternative history wargaming scenario. Real though the main plan was, it wasn't long for this world. One thing was certain though, any attack upon the United States would require Britain to defend Canada, since an attack on those territories would surely be the easiest way for the United States to pressure Britain on land. Furthermore, following the mobilisation of Union soldiers throughout 1861, The United States was in a far better strategic position, with perhaps 200,000 men under arms at this point, to strike at Canada's defences. In the event that they did strike at Canada's defences, the United States would have been met with a determined militia of 100,000 men and a professional force not even amounting to 10,000. This was not what Viscount Palmerston, Britain's Prime Minister at the time, had initially wanted The arrival of winter had reduced his options, and the freezing of the St. Lawrence River made direct reinforcement, most notably into the Great Lakes area, far more difficult by sea, at least until the spring, by which point cooler heads might have prevailed anyway. But enough of that background detail, let's look at the plans as they were in any case. If you're interested, these details come straight from an article written by Kenneth Byrne, ...called British Preparations for War with the North, 1861-1862... to ...and it was published in the English Historical Review Journal in 1961. Just so you know. The first two weeks of December 1861 were by far the most eventful in terms of military planning. It was decided therein first to send reinforcements to Canada and to prepare the transportation of more men, and then on the 9th of December, during a special war committee, to send the entire fleet forward under orders. As Kenneth Byrne has noted, this coordination of the different departments and services of the army, militia and navy, when, by the way, no system for such cooperation existed in Britain at this time. Kenneth Byrne believed this was no mean achievement. Sending the fleet in its full powers would send a clear message to the United States, but if these orders and intentions were clear, the situation in Canada was less so. The most pressing concern for Britain regarding Canada concerned the size and character of the force the Americans could be expected to apply to the Canadian frontier, and specifically whether the American Civil War would permit the Americans to mount a major invasion Or would confine them to minor operations. There was one cause for relief, at least. That old theory that North and South would reunite to fight against Britain had been discounted at this stage. Indeed, Britain's Secretary for War, Cornwallis Lewis, believed this idea was very wild and ill considered. Colonel MacDougall, a former commanding officer of the Royal Canadian Rifles, Was tasked with advising the British in its Canadian defence, and he opined that the feeling of positive hatred entertained by the South towards the North is a passion which infinitely overbears any abstract feeling of patriotism which may once have existed. The possibility that the United States and the Confederacy would unite to fight Britain just like the old times was wrong headed. Sir John Burgoyne, the Inspector General of Canadian Fortifications, did not believe that the South would commit so suicidal an act as to engage in a new war of no interest to them and thus to support and give increased power to those who must always be their antagonists. By this point, of course, Burgoyne meant the North when he talked of the South's antagonists. Even the British recognised that the bitterness between North and South of America would supersede any latent bitterness that the Confederacy and the United States may have held collectively against the old colonial master. Yet, while there seemed no room for a war of reunification against the British so long as the Civil War continued, MacDougall played devil's advocate and believed it. By no means impossible that the Northern Department, driven to their wit's end for money and foreseeing no success in their present hopeless undertaking, would be glad of anything which should afford them an excuse in the eyes of their countrymen to put an end to the contest by recognising the seceded states. But when MacDougall spoke of an excuse to put an end to the contest, what excuse did he speak of? Well, in this case he meant the American conquest of Canada. If this happened, though, and the United States didn't crush their rebellion in favour of attempting to crush the British, Burgoyne supposed this would establish the rights of states to secede, a precedent which surely no self-respecting United States government would want to establish. These advisers were agreed that Canada would be safe in an Anglo-American war that still had the North distracted by its war to the South. But as to the implications of the Civil War continuing into 1862 or beyond that, neither Canadian military expert wanted to speculate. This is likely because neither expert was armed with particularly solid information about the capabilities of the Union army. Without this knowledge, how could the fate of any Anglo-American conflict be properly guessed at? And what of the Canadian defences in question? If the worst did happen and the Union was freed from its civil war, would an army of 200,000 American soldiers face many difficulties in overcoming the 1,500-mile border with Canada? This was what had the British particularly nervous. MacDougall appreciated that a major offensive by a force of any reasonable size and even minor attacks by quite small forces would be extremely dangerous. The huge frontier border was less an obstacle, as the historian Kenneth Byrne appreciated, than an invitation to attack. Not only were the Canadians in a dismal defensive position But the United States would have been in an ideal offensive position. The United States boasted excellent communications, superior local resources in men and material and any offensive would be launched with the industrial and financial heartland of the United States close by. One issue of key importance would be for the British to seize control of the Great Lakes in the region. The Americans would then have to defend their own towns on the lakes which would tie down their forces and hopefully blunt any Canadian offensive. Another key ingredient was a system of fortifications that would frustrate and delay the Americans long enough for reinforcements to arrive from the mother country. It was taken for granted that the Royal Navy would seize control of the seas. This was one aspect of the plan that all British military could agree on. But the Canadian fortifications were old, some dated to the late 18th century, and those around Quebec had not been refreshed to withstand modern artillery. The British also lacked any naval force whatsoever to send onto the lakes, nor did they have the men on hand to spare for these fortifications. And what of this famous militia? By law, Canada's entire population between the ages of 18 and 60 were liable for service, But many militiamen had no experience, and beyond actually being recruited in the first place, many had no real concept of actual militia service. The more active militia force, the so-called volunteers, received 12 days training per year at the most. Nor did the British possess the required small arms to equip its militia, in the event that its full complement of 100,000 men optimistically did materialise. On the eve of the Trent incident, for instance, only 25,000 firearms were in place and 10,000 of these were smoothbore muskets. Although over 20,000 firearms were provided separately for the maritime provinces in Canada, more than a third of these were also old model weapons, lacking rifling of any kind and reserved mostly for the drill. And this is before we even look at the poor communications and transport links between the Canadian provinces. The sheer size of Canada demanded extensive rail links. Yet aside from the Grand Trunk Railway which was built the previous decade and linked the United States' state of Maine to Montreal, and then from Montreal to Ontario another track ran, no significant rail network existed to connect Canada's maritime provinces. These maritime provinces, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick and Prince Edward's Island, were particularly vulnerable to US attack, as any map of Canada today will show you. The British could only reinforce these provinces by sea, or through the St Lawrence River with its corresponding canals that led from the sea to the Great Lakes. Since this route was iced over from December to April every year, it meant that establishing any force on the Great Lakes would become a really difficult task, and the initiative was likely to fall to the Americans. Simply put, as well, the years of underinvestment and unpreparedness along the Canadian border meant that Britain was not in a position to successfully defend it. No one could imagine what would happen once the soldiers invaded, of course, but the British knew their prospects were not good for defending, or even retaining, Canada. The best hope in the event of war with the United States was to trust in the Confederacy's ability to tie American forces down. Yet, this apparent sense of gloom would not stop the British from trying. The most effective thing that could be done was to put boots on the ground. Not only would this shore up Canadian defences, it would also send a clear diplomatic signal to the United States that Britain was sincere in its quest to gain satisfaction over the Trent incident. On the ninth of December 1861, the War Committee elected to send 10,000 men to North America. This number was increased the following week to 11,000 who would join the 6,500 professionals that already existed in Canada. The end results would see 12,500 regulars residing in Canada, with 5,000 in the Maritime Provinces. We could interpret British speed and reinforcement as proof of how seriously they regarded the prospect of war with the United States, or we could look at it instead as a by-product of Britain having to deal with the tricky matter of Canadian reinforcement for so many years. Either way, the numbers are minuscule compared to the statistics wrought by the Union, who brought more than 35,000 soldiers to fight the Confederacy during the first Bull Run in July 1861. The following year, the numbers on both sides of the Civil War had swelled dramatically, and General McClellan was able to lead over 87,000 men to Antietam. The Battle of Antietam was famously christened the bloodiest day in American history, leaving at least 22,000 dead, wounded or missing. By July 1863 at Gettysburg, the Union brought as many as 104,000 effectives to bear against the Confederacy's 75,000. Now, of course, these numbers are likely very familiar to my American listeners, but for those outside of the US history curriculum, these numbers give a good idea of what the Americans were capable of in terms of mobilisation of manpower alone. Any long war with Britain would evoke the familiar problems faced by the British nearly a century before, when British reinforcements had to be sent across the Atlantic and the Americans had the local advantage. Notwithstanding these painful facts though, those 11,000 men were sent over by Britain from the 12th of December to the 4th of January. Almost immediately, these 11,000 men ran into problems. As expected, the St. Lawrence was too badly iced up to be used. Many of the reinforcements had to travel overland as a result, under bitter conditions and on poor roads. Even more interesting, and unintentionally hilarious, was the fate of the military staff, who were supposed to prepare the way for the incoming British soldiers. Facing frequent delays and running out of coal, their vessel limped into Halifax, Nova Scotia, On the 5th of January. It was then believed that moving south and into America and taking advantage of their lines of transport and communication would actually be quicker than proceeding north, so the staff on board were forced to remove the military labels from their baggage, venture first to Boston and then make their way north using the Grand Trunk Railway which whisked them to Montreal. This scenic route was only possible because Lincoln cautiously allowed this British military staff to travel, despite what it meant for American defences. American cooperation notwithstanding, the British had at least learned their lessons from the Crimean War. The soldiers enjoyed bountiful supplies, warm blankets, a proper complement of winter clothing, snowshoes and waterproof capes. The British were said to have consulted with Florence Nightingale to ensure that the calamities of the mid-1850s, where many thousands died from disease and lack of provisions, were not repeated. Since the problems associated with the defence of the Canadian border were legion, British strategic minds turned instead to the possibility that a policy of attack was preferable. The Canadian position was Britain's weak link But the loss of Canada would not necessarily mean that Britain lost the war, nor on the other hand could Britain truly hurt the United States from the Canadian front line. Thus began the discussion of the curious expedition against the state of Maine. The major drawback of such a scheme revolved around the fact that it would have to be launched at the very beginning of the war. Surprise was among its greatest attributes, but this surprise would vanish once the war began, and Americans reinforced their more vulnerable coasts. There would be no space for a limited attack or for a brief, inconsequential Anglo-American war to run out of steam. Simply put, the main invasion plan would significantly raise the stakes. By the 26th of December, military experts like MacDougall and Burgoyne that we mentioned earlier ...were still recommending the main plan, even though it had largely been abandoned by the British government... ...and they continued to draw up a list of the forces that would be needed. But this plan was not their only option. British military figures openly discussed the implications for America... ...if the war was official and Britain's navy had free reign to attack America's eastern seaboard. The likes of New York and Boston would be quickly in flames and no one minced any words over how terrible this would be for the American people or their interests. War, in the opinion of Milne, the commander of Britain's North American naval squadron, has no doubt its honours and its evils, but to make war felt it must be carried against the enemy with energy, and every place must be made to feel what war really is. The question of defence was thus important in London, but far more time and ink was spent on the subject of attack, Thanks to moving some pieces along the board, Admiral Milne enjoyed a force of about 40 vessels, while a further eight vessels were on standby in Gibraltar, should they be required. Would Milne sail these to New York or Boston or Philadelphia once war was declared? The object of the war, Milne wrote, can of course only be considered to cripple the enemy. That is, his trade and of his trade it can only be his shipping. No object would be gained if the forts alone are to be attacked, as modern views deprecate any damage to a town. If ships are fired upon in a port, the town must suffer, therefore the shipping cannot be fired on. This actually reserves operations to against vessels at sea. If a town is undefended or the defence is subdued, an embargo might be put on it and a subsidy demanded.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Ambitious and apocalyptic, though the British military plans may have seemed, the standards of the time really required that America's seaboard cities could not be left in flames, no matter how harsh the talk of some papers might have been. There was no real appetite for a morally dubious campaign of retaliation within the British cabinet as well, particularly when considering the latent sympathy for the United States against the Confederacy. In addition, the War Committee accepted from the beginning that the British were in no position to reconquer the United States or add its Republic to the Empire. One commented that, The very nature of the country ensures success to its occupants. What would be the use in burning down those cities if the war would not end in the conquest that typically followed such a policy? If the reading of the British strategy is correct, then the plan to launch an expedition against Maine can seem wholly out of left field, yet there was a method to the apparent madness. To begin with, Maine bordered Britain's North American possessions, and the potential was there for reuniting that state with the Empire, thereby strengthening Britain's defences in the region, In the future. That being said, the importance of acting quickly was plain, otherwise, the United States could have attacked across the Maine border first. Although Milne referred to Maine as that state inclined to change masters, others advised a wait and see approach, which was incompatible with the original strategy and only complicated the discussions. Unless, McDougall argued, a preemptive strike was launched in Maine, the entire Maine strategy would not be feasible. The question was, did the British have the desire to launch this preemptive strike in the event that Seward and President Lincoln refused to offer redress? McDougall posited that Maine's position in the Union was not as strong as might be expected. The interests of Maine and Canada are identical, the military adviser declared, adding, A strong party is believed to exist in Maine in favour of annexation to Canada and no sympathy is there felt for the war which now desolates the United States. It is more than probable that a conciliatory policy adopted towards Maine would, if it failed to secure its absolute cooperation, indispose it to use any vigorous efforts against us. The patriotism of the Americans dwells particularly in their pockets, and the pockets of the good citizens of Maine would benefit largely by the expenditure and trade we should create in making Portland our base, and their territory or line of communication with Canada. It should be said that MacDougall's subordinate did not share his rosy view of the situation, and believed that, instead of the aforementioned invasion, possibly a very strict blockade without an attack might induce the people of Maine to consider whether it would not be in their interest to declare themselves independent of the United States. Although hesitation heavily reduced the likelihood that Any of these schemes would soon go ahead. There was no doubt that Britain would direct its naval forces to destroy the blockade of the Confederacy. Milne, the Northern Admiral, insisted that the destruction of the North's navy outside the southern ports would also prevent any American attacks on Britain's West Indian positions, which interestingly had not been reinforced at all. With the Northern army in tatters, its morale plummeting, Britain would then turn the tables and implement its own blockade of the United States seaboard. This, combined with the prospect of facing down a reinvigorated confederacy on land, would surely be enough to convince Lincoln and Seaward to make peace. Fears that the situation would develop in this way should persuade the United States from the beginning that war with the British would be suicide. Should Washington's statesmen refuse to admit this logic, though, the plans were detailed enough to force them to see sense. And this brings us to a key point about all these preparations and visions of Anglo-American conflict. What Palmerston's administration wanted more than anything else was for the United States to roll over and grant it the satisfaction it desired. Anglo-American commercial and industrial links were strong and lucrative and had only grown in the years since the War of 1812. Considering the fact that the British could not hope to conquer the United States that any conflict with Washington would be immensely costly and probably thankless, and that it would serve to prop up a slaver's state in the South, all of this helps to explain a lack of war enthusiasm within Palmerston's government once the initial fury died down. As Kenneth Bourne concluded, Fortunately, for the course of Anglo-American relations, the crisis passed without provoking the clash for which all the preparations were intended but the indications which they give of the British evaluation of the character of an Anglo-American war are still significant enough, it is probably futile, to try and estimate the outcome of such conflict. Too much would have depended upon the imponderable fortunes of war. There was, unquestionably, a desire to recoup British national honour, but this was not the same as desiring war. National honour could be redeemed in a peaceful manner, and the act of getting their way with minimal expense or effort was the raison d'etre of Palmerston's foreign policy. By leveraging British prestige in the past, powers great and small had been persuaded to roll over and accept British rulings or concede to British demands. Only when those powers refused to listen was force brought to bear. On occasion, this coercion would be accompanied by threats of force, and these threats were not always sincerely intended and can be considered as bluffs, bluffing being thoroughly dishonourable behaviour, but only if that bluff was unsuccessful. By leveraging the prestige of her navy, the power of empire, and the difficult conditions the United States faced, contemporaries assumed that an American submission of some kind would surely be the result. Something which is important to note, though, is that Palmerston's administration really was prepared to make war on the United States if the answer that Britain wanted was not given back. Foreign Secretary Earl Russell did work to make the humble pie as easy for the Americans to eat as we have seen, and he gave strict instructions to Ambassador Lyons in Washington not to menace the Americans or behave in a smug or offhand manner. Lord Lyons, a consummate professional and mindful of the American situation, did not have to be told twice. But these were courtesies on the British part, and while they left some British newspapers concerned that the United States might interpret generosity for weakness, this was the only course Palmerston's government could follow. Richard Cobden, a radical liberal MP, a free trader, and frequently seen with John Bright, his ideological ally, offered the view that during the crisis over the Trent, Palmerston was merely engaging in bluff and bluster. Palmerston, Cobden said, likes to drive the wheel close to the edge and show how dexterously he can avoid falling over the precipice. But Palmerston was doing his duty as Prime Minister to tend to all possibilities, and while it was very unlikely that the United States would permit a war to break out with Britain by refusing satisfaction to her, it was not impossible, and therefore plans had to be made. That said, the burgeoning American Republic was not nearly so threatening now that she was so thoroughly occupied at home. Formerly, England feared a war with the United States as much as from the dependence on your cotton as from a dread of your power, Richard Cobden wrote to Charles Sumner, who was then the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Now, Cobden argued, the popular opinion, however erroneous, is that a war with the United States would give us cotton, and we, of course, consider your power weakened by your civil war. Even such a zealous pacifist like Richard Cobden recognised that the United States was at its weakest point since the War of 1812. If any moment was ripe for the third round of the Anglo-American conflict, it was now the weakness of Canadian defenses notwithstanding. Great Britain, Palmerston wrote to the Queen at the time, is in a better state than at any former time to inflict a severe blow upon and to read a lesson to the United States, which will not soon be forgotten. Lord Lyons on the ground in Washington, and trying to hold the delicate threads of Anglo-American diplomacy together, later reflected that diplomacy alone would have done little towards settling the Trent question had not the military preparations come in aid of it. To Prince George, the Duke of Cambridge and Commander-in-Chief of British Forces, it was not altogether a bad thing that after making such an effort in their preparations for war with the United States, this war did not come about. The Duke said, I do not at all regret the demonstration, though we are not, as it appears, to have war. It will be a valuable lesson to the Americans and to the world at large and will prove to all what England can and will do when the necessity for so doing arises. It also establishes the fact that we are not that insignificant military power which some people are disposed to make out, and that the military organisation of our departments is now such that at any moment we can be and are prepared for war, should it suddenly arise. It also proves that we have an able staff to conduct the details of a difficult operation. It was vitally important to the Duke, who was the Queen's cousin no less, that Britain's military prestige and standing be maintained. The best way to ensure this was to engage in precise military planning whenever a crisis did occur, so that the nation was ready, in effect, to throw its weight around. The Victorians liked to refer to this approach as being in earnest, and it amounted to taking crises seriously and preparing for the worst. Lincoln and Seward did not know how detailed Britain's military plans were, but even the act of sending reinforcements to Canada was proof enough that Britain wasn't bluffing. It should also go without saying that a war with Britain, while engaged in a bitter conflict against the Confederacy, was the nightmare scenario which Washington sought to avoid at all costs. It was not about American national pride. In this case, it was about national survival, and the durability of the Union was more important at the end of the day than puffing up one's chest and refusing to swallow Britain's bitter pill. To the British government, there was a sense that they had little choice but to put on a brave face and prepare for the grave task ahead. Field Marshal Garnet Wolseley, later to succeed the Duke of Cambridge as Commander-in-Chief of British forces, was under no illusions. Britain would have toughish work of it, Wolseley said, adding that they were now on the verge of the greatest war which had taken place in our days. A great and terrible war it would be, but British had no doubt that they would win. Its ministers believed in eventual victory, but they did know that the war with the United States would be immensely expensive and in many respects unrewarding. Granted, a war with the United States would validate Britain's claim to prestige and world power status, and it proved that she would show her rivals that the empire would allow no insult to slip by, regardless of cost. This might give potential offenders a reason to pause and consider their dealings with Britain more carefully. But aside from instilling this lesson into the world, the war with America seemed thankless and wrong-headed. A war with the Confederacy to kill dead the crime of slavery would surely be better. Vested economic interests in business particularly and in manufacturing which criss-crossed the Atlantic left some like Richard Cobden and John Bright Convinced that Britain should never, and likely would never, make war on the United States, either now or in the future. The power of free trade to persuade even sabre-rattlers to quieten down seemed obvious to those two gentlemen, and they were by no means alone in this view. Some feared a less noble outcome to the crisis, that Britain would in fact back down, unwilling to force the issue, and the Americans would have their way. Writing in late November, as news of the Trent incident was received, the Earl of Clarendon, a Conservative MP and former Foreign Secretary, shared his concerns. What a figure we shall cut in the eyes of the world if we tamely submit to this outrage when all mankind will know that we should unhesitatingly have poured our indignation and our broadsides into any weak nation and what an additional proof it will be of the universal belief that we have two sets of weights and measures to be used according to the power or weakness of our adversary. I have a horror of war, and of all wars, one with the United States, because nothing would be so prejudicial to our interests. But peace, like other good things, may be bought too dearly, and it never can be worth the price of national honour. The Earl of Clarendon was certainly very generous to speak to my PhD thesis in such a way, but he was also to be relieved by Palmerston's stance. The Prime Minister understood that Britain could not afford to budge on the issue. And let's not forget that Palmerston and Russell were each furious, privately, at how the Americans had behaved, and they both longed for redress, if not revenge. These sentiments did cool, but they never cooled sufficiently as to induce Palmerston to simply back down and forget all about it. Backing down wasn't what he was known for, and even in the twilight of his career, to retreat on the world stage before a divided America would have been extremely unusual behaviour for him. So, now that we've established that the British genuinely were prepared for war, for better or for worse if the United States did not provide a satisfactory answer, Let's continue our examination of the Trent Affair in the next episode, by looking at how the crisis remained on the boil, but how some news from Britain served to dull the senses somewhat and pull attention back towards domestic matters. The death of the Prince Consort in the middle of December 1861 didn't just shatter Queen Victoria's mood, it also sent shockwaves across the world. We're going to look at that in the next episode, and I hope you'll join me for that. But in the meantime, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, remember Britain Goes to War will look at all this stuff in more juicy, glorious detail. Until then, though, guys, thanks for listening and supporting this show. Remember to check out Matchlock if you like historical fiction set during the Thirty Years' War. Take care, and I'll be seeing you all soon.